Well, a number of years ago, Will Ferrell made a movie called Talladega Nights, and it was sort of a goofy movie about a race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And uh, for the record, I don't recommend it. Uh, both artistically and morally, it's hard to watch. It probably shouldn't be used as a sermon illustration. But I'm desperate. I need this sermon illustration. And here's the reason why. There's this scene in Talladega Nights where Ricky Bobby sits down with his family to have a family dinner, and he's going to pray. He's going to say grace. Except that when he does this, he addresses the entire prayer to baby Jesus. He prays, dear baby Jesus this and baby Jesus that. And after like a couple of minutes of just cringe-worthy prayer, I was squirming in my seat when I had to watch this. His wife finally interrupts him and says, hey, honey, you know, uh, uh, hey, sweetie, you know, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. And Ricky Bobby responds by saying, look, I like Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can pray to grown-up Jesus. Well, I bring that up because during the month of December, uh, many of us focus on baby Jesus. We focus on the story of Christ's birth from Matthew chapters 1 and 2 and Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we focus on Christmas Jesus, and we sing, What Child Is This?, and other Christmas songs. And whether you're a Christian or not, it presents a picture of Jesus that is very soft uh, and very non-threatening. It presents a picture of Jesus that candidly is non-threatening to those who reject Him and non-threatening to Christians who are living in sin. And like Ricky Bobby, I think some of us might actually prefer the Christmas Jesus more than we would admit in church. But the reality is Jesus grew up to be a man. And the man we encounter in the gospel accounts isn't a man who's soft, and he's not a man who's non-threatening to people who love sin or are full of their own virtue and won't agree with God's diagnosis of their problem. He's not soft on those who refuse to bow the knee to God. And even for those of us who have bowed the knee to God, and we are trying our best to follow Jesus, uh, we, we still struggle. Uh, we, there's still a part of us that likes a soft Jesus because grown-up Jesus doesn't always affirm us or comfort us or say things that are easy to accept. He teaches some things that are counterintuitive uh, for sinners to believe. He rebukes and warns and teaches things that can be hard to hear. And I say that because you see that completely on display with His disciples. Think about the way Jesus, for instance, interacted with Peter. When you read how Jesus interacted with Peter, do you walk away thinking of Him as being uh, giving only positive affirmation to everything Peter did and said? No, no, you don't, right? And that's because uh, Jesus, in His ministry, challenged people. Now, I've been pastor here for nine years, and every Christmas I leave whatever book study we're going through to preach Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke 1 and 2 about baby Jesus. And candidly, I've preached a, a good number of sermons that even Ricky Bobby could accept. And so this year, I'm repenting. And that means this year, you're going to get a heaping helping of grown-up Jesus for our Christmas series. I'm entitling this year's Christmas series, Why Jesus Came. During His public ministry, there were a number of occasions in which Jesus said, for this reason I've come into the world. He talks about why He 
came. And we're going to look at those together during December to be reminded of why Jesus came into the world. The first one of these statements I want to show you is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Please turn in your Bible to Matthew 5, verse 17. And while you're turning there, uh, let me say a few words about context. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe that individual sentences and chapters in Scripture should be interpreted in their context, uh, interpreted according to what comes before and after them. We don't want to be people who cherry-pick our favorite sentences and phrases out of Scripture, lift them out of their context, and then subtly change their meaning into something that we want. And that includes our pastor not cherry-picking in the pulpit. So, uh, let me give you the context of Matthew 5, 17. Uh, These words of Jesus come from what's become popularly known among Christians as the Sermon on the Mount. So, this is happening very early in Jesus' public ministry. He's on a hill overlooking the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. You can go there today and see the view that everybody had uh, while He was up there. Uh, And the Sermon on the Mount, what it basically amounts to is Jesus instructing people very early on in His ministry about the rules of the kingdom He is coming to inaugurate. And it has an introduction, a body, and a conclusion. In the introduction, He talks about the citizens of the kingdom. That's where you find the Beatitudes, right? And and He talks about uh, uh, the, the people of His kingdom are poor in spirit, right? They're not full of their own virtue or proud of their own moral track record because they admit they've done wrong. They admit they're sinners. They mourn over their sin, and they, they mourn over the, the misery that sin has brought into the world. And because of the way that they grieve over their own sin, they can then be gentle with other people. Those are the first three uh, that I gave. There's, there's more, being peacemakers, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But he, he tells you about what the citizens of the kingdom are, are like. And then, interestingly enough, in the very verse I'm going to take us to today, the body of Jesus' sermon begins, and the body is all about the righteousness that characterizes the kingdom. And there's three areas of righteousness He speaks to. Uh, First of all, there is righteousness in relationship to God's revelation, to the Scriptures, having a right relationship to what God has revealed to us through Moses and the prophets. And that runs from chapter 5, verse 17, through the end of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he talks about having a right relationship with God in terms of the way we pray to Him and in terms of the worship, the, the, the formal acts of worship we offer to Him. And then chapter 7 is about having right relationships with the other people around us whom God loves. And then the conclusion of the sermon comes with three warnings. Jesus ends by warning us about the wrong entrance to the kingdom, that there will be false teachers who will lead you astray if you let them. You need to be discerning. And then He also warns about the danger on a personal level of making a false profession of faith. That's the structure of the sermon. And I want you to hear how the body of the sermon begins and ends. In chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus opens the body of the sermon by saying, "'Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill.'" 
And then he closes the body of the sermon in chapter 7, verse 12, by saying, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. What words are repeated there? Well, the law and the prophets. And so the heart of Jesus' teaching is bracketed by his teaching about the law and the prophets, the five books of Moses and the Old Testament prophets, which we refer to amongst ourselves as the Old Testament. It's all about his relationship to the Old Testament. So when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he's referring to what we know of as the Old Testament scriptures. With that in mind, follow along with me, listening to what he says about his own relationship to the Old Testament scriptures in chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven." Now, whenever you're interpreting a, a paragraph of Scripture, one of the best ways to understand the theme is to look for repeated words or phrases or ideas. Uh, look with me at what is repeated in these three verses. Verse 17, the law and the prophets. Verse 18, the law. Verse 19, one of the least of these commandments. And so, whenever you're reading in the New Testament and you hear Jesus refer to the Old Testament, He refers to it in one of three ways. He either calls it the law, like the law of Moses, or He calls it the law and the prophets, or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that was uh, because what the Jews did was they divided the Old Testament up into three, uh, three sections. There was the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and there, then there was the prophets, which included not only the prophets, but many of the books we would consider to be uh, books of historical narrative about the history of the nation of Israel. And then the Psalms didn't just stand for the 150 Psalms we can read about. It included the wisdom literature, like Psalms and Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and it also included a number of shorter books that we would consider kind of historical, like Ruth. They put Ruth with the wisdom literature. And so, whenever you're reading the New Testament and you hear Jesus refer to the law and the prophets, what He's speaking of is the Old Testament. And here's the point of what Jesus is teaching. A true subject of His kingdom will have a right relationship with Scripture. A true Christian can be recognized by how he or she responds to Scripture. But what exactly is the right response to Scripture? Well, Jesus outlines the proper response in this paragraph. He begins verse 17 by saying, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, when Jesus begins by saying, do not think, immediately He's going after our thinking. Uh, for Jewish people, uh, the, the most well-known verse in the Old Testament, you think about amongst Christians, at least in America, the most well-known verse in the New Testament is John 3.16, right? I say, we teach every kindergartner to be able to recite John 3.16. Everybody knows it. Even people outside the church can recite John 3.16. Well, in Jewish culture, in Jesus' day, the number one most understood, memor the, the first verse the children memorized was the Shema, Deuteronomy 
4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, during his ministry, someone asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment in the books of Moses? Because the books of Moses have over 600 separate commands. So, which of them is the most important? And Jesus answered by quoting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. But as New Testament Christians, when we memorize it and when we teach our children to memorize it, uh, we don't memorize it the same way Moses records it. How do we memorize it? We memorize it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, so far so good, and then we add, and with all your mind. Well, who is adding to Deuteronomy 6.4? Who is adding words to sacred Scripture? Answer, Jesus Himself. Jesus is the one who added mind. The reason we teach our children that way, the reason we memorize it that way, is because our Lord Jesus, on His own divine authority, added mind as one of the ways we can love God. And here, he's, when He speaks about why He came into the world, He's inviting us into an opportunity to love God with our minds by the way we think. And the first thing to notice about His words is that He's talking about why He came in a way that none of us uh, can, in a way that none of us can, can talk in. Uh, sometimes we talk with each other about coming to or going to a particular place for a, a particular reason. So, for me, uh, nine years ago, I moved away from Los Angeles to Fredericksburg so that I could uh, take the pastoral position here at Grace Fellowship Church. Well, in a similar way, when Jesus started His public ministry around the age of 30, He left His hometown of Nazareth that He had grown up in and moved to Capernaum on the North Shore of the Sea of Galilee, and He made Capernaum His home base of ministry during the, the three years of public ministry He did. Now, and granted, He traveled a lot, so He was not always in Capernaum uh, a whole lot, but that was His home base, that was His new address, if you will. Uh, during his public ministry. But when he says here, do not think I've come for this, he's not talking about his move from Nazareth to Capernaum. If you pay attention to the other places in the gospel accounts where he talks about why he came, he's talking about this is why I've come into the world. Uh, now, none of us can speak that way, and the reason is because we didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose when and where or to whom we would be born to. And what it points to is this, Jesus didn't have to come. He was under no obligation to come. The Gospel of John teaches us that Jesus dwelled with God as God from eternity past. At the right time, He added divinity to His divine nature and was born of a virgin to fulfill prophecy. His adoptive father, not biological, adoptive father, Joseph, named him Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent of the name Joseph in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, uh, Joshua, Joshua. And the name Joshua in Hebrew means Yahweh saves. And the incarnate Son of God was named Yahweh saves because when He grew up to be a man in His humanity, He would save people from their sins. He had to be born as a baby and grow up and go through the whole process of growing up in order to identify with us in our humanity, but long before becoming a human, while still remaining fully God, He had lived with God from eternity past. So, when Jesus says, 
for this reason I've come into the world, it's a reminder that unlike us, He chose to come, and He didn't have to. He was under no obligation. But He chose to come, and He chose to come for a number of different reasons, and one of them was to fulfill what was written in the Law of Moses and the Prophets. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus sets the idea of fulfilling the law and the, and the prophets in contrast to abolishing them. Now, that Greek word for abolish, it was used by Greeks for uh, demolishing a bridge, demolishing a building, tearing it down so that then you could build something else. And it was used metaphorically uh, for uh, annulling something. Uh, and the Greek word for fulfill here was used in the physical realm for filling something up, like a net with fish or a room full of a fragrance. It was used metaphorically for bringing something to completion or perfecting a work that was already in the middle of progress. And the fact is this, God's plan of redemption is a story. It's an, it has a beginning and a middle and an end. It, it has an unfolding in history where God made man in His own image, but mankind fell into sin. But God didn't let the story end there. He didn't let the story end with judgment. He set in motion a plan whereby He, as a perfectly holy God, could eventually dwell with unholy people who He makes holy by His grace. And the point is this, Jesus didn't come to demo the story that was started in the Old Testament and just begin uh, began a whole brand new story. That's not what He's doing. He came to complete the story of redemption that was started in Genesis 3. And He does that by fulfilling Scripture. But the question is, how? Specifically, precisely, in what ways does He fulfill the Scriptures. Well, there's a number of marvelous ways I want to unfold for you this morning. And I think first, we should start with, uh, with answering the question based on what Jesus is teaching in the near context. In the near context of this passage, how is He claiming that He fulfills Scripture? Um, well, after talking about how He came to fulfill Scripture, what does He do? Look at verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with desire for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's going on here? Jesus is correcting the way that the scribes and Pharisees were misinterpreting, misapplying, and misrepresenting God's commandments. They were an illustration of what it means to annul God's commandments and teach others to do the same. They were teaching that you could get angry with and insult and hate others provided you didn't murder them. They were teaching that you could indulge in sexual fantasies as long as you didn't commit the physical act of adultery. Uh, 
They introduced, just think about this for a moment, they introduced religiously sanctioned no-fault divorce, even though no sane reading of the Torah would yield those results. But that's what they were teaching. A man can divorce his wife for any reason. He just needs to make sure he gives her a formal certificate of divorce. That's what they were teaching. This was ridiculous. They're doing exactly what Jesus warned about in verse 19 when He talked about annulling the commands and teaching others to do the same. And so, in this paragraph, what Jesus is communicating in essence is this. I've come to teach you the true intention and meaning of the Old Testament, but the scribes and Pharisees are going to slander me. They're going to portray me as a renegade teacher who's trying to demolish the law, but that's not what's going on. Yes, I am demolishing their man-made interpretations of Scriptures and laws, that, but that's because their man-made traditions are nullifying the true commands of God, and I've come to correct that. Um, and if you want a picture of what it looks like to annul the commandments of God and teach others to do the same, all you have to do is just read the rest of chapter 5, and you'll get specific, concrete illustrations of how the scribes and the Pharisees were annulling God's commands. So, Jesus came to fulfill Scripture by teaching the true, authoritative, and complete meaning and intention of what God was communicating in the Old Testament. The second way Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is in the sense that He fulfills the prophecies about Messiah's coming. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Messiah's coming, about a special servant God would send into the world to be a Savior. And from the time of Daniel, from the time of the prophet Daniel on, this special servant becomes known in Judaism as the Messiah, God's promised Messiah. And Jesus fulfills all of those prophecies. Some of the prophecies related to Messiah were about His birth, that He would be born of a virgin, that He would be born in the town of Bethlehem, that He would be truly God and truly man. Some of the prophecies related to things He would do in His life and in His ministry, and yet other of, others of the prophecies related to His death, that He would voluntarily become a guilt offering and die for the sins of His people. So, in His birth and life and death and even in His resurrection, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that help us identify Him as the Lord's Messiah. But we shouldn't just think of Him as fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies only in the sense that He's uh, fulfilling Old Testament predictions about who the Messiah would be, because in fulfilling the prophecies, what He also does functionally is fulfill all of the promises of God to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul teaches this very thing in a way that sounds very naturally in Greek, and I'm warning you ahead of time, it just comes over really awkward in English. But let me read it to you, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it, because it's actually a really wonderful verse. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Jesus they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. What is the Apostle Paul doing there? Well, he's relating the words yes and amen, and amen means to affirm something is true. It's just, it's like another way of saying yes. And the point is this, all of God's promises to us are confirmed as true through Jesus. In his book, Future Grace, 
John Piper explains this verse better than I can. He explains it this way, quote, all of the promises of God for the good of His people are in Christ. Every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all his needs finds God coming to him in Christ with all his promises. When a sinful person meets the holy God in Christ, what he hears is, yes, God, do you love me? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Will you accept me? Yes. Will you change me? Yes. Will you give me power to serve you? Yes. Will you keep me? Yes. Will you show me your glory? Yes. Jesus didn't just fulfill prophecies about Himself so that we could positively identify Him as Messiah and and not be fooled by some imposter. In fulfilling the prophecies, He also fulfills the promises of God to us to send a Savior as a remedy for our sin, a Savior who is proof positive of God's love for us. So, Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures, number one, by authoritatively teaching their true meaning, but also by fulfilling all the messianic prophecies, which also function as promises of God to us. But there's more. The third way He fulfills the Scripture is by fulfilling what we might call the ceremonial requirements of the Mosaic law. Uh, Part of those requirements were animal sacrifices for sin. If you remember, uh, there were animal sacrifices given to Israel by God, and those sacrifices were pedagogical. They taught the people that the penalty for sin is death, and that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but God is gracious and will provide a substitute. Those sacrifices taught the people truth, but the sacrifices were also functional. They gave worshipers a way to approach God and have a temporary covering for their sin. But those sacrifices could never permanently take away sin. For that to happen, someone had to die who bore a closer resemblance to us than an animal not made in the image of God. Someone had to die who was both human and blameless before the law of God. The author of Hebrews explains it this way, the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But by those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins." The true worshipers of Yahweh in the Old Testament, they knew in their conscience that the blood of an animal would never be enough to permanently take away their sin. Someone who bore a closer resemblance to us needed to come. Someone who was human and blameless before the law of God had to die. But that someone couldn't just be a human who was blameless before the law. And the reason why is this. No mere human, even if they were perfect, could ever offer himself as a third party to absolve the sins of another who's offended God. No, the sacrifice had to also be divine. And that's what you find in the God-man, Jesus Christ. At the cross, God paid the price for our sins Himself in the person of God the Son. God the Son added humanity to His divine nature, was born of a virgin, fulfilled the Scriptures, and became a once-for-all, never-to-be-repeated 
guilt offering for our sins. And time would fail me to go on explaining how He also fulfills the ceremonial law by being our perfect and final high priest, uh, and also by the way that He pronounces all foods clean uh, because of His sacrifice. Uh, he also ushers in the Sabbath rest for us, having, ma- having made peace for us with God. He ushers in our Sabbath rest, which is the rest that the Sabbath day under the Old Covenant always pointed forward to. Now, my explanation here of how Jesus fulfills the ceremonial law, in it you can also kind of sense where I'm going with this. You can also sense that I'm, I'm probably going to preach that He fulfills the moral law, he, because He always obeyed the commands of God. And by obeying the commands of God, when He became a mediator, mediator for us between God and us, two things happen. Jesus took the judgment that our sins deserve on Himself so that we could be forgiven. But then when we confess our sins, repent of living our own way, and place our faith in Christ, His perfectly obedient life is credited to us by faith so that we receive the reward He earned for His obedience by faith. By teaching the authoritative meaning of the Old Testament and by fulfilling messianic prophecies and by perfectly keeping all of God's commands and by also uh, becoming a high priest and our once-for-all, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. But as we appreciate each of these individual ways that He fulfills Moses and the prophets, we dare not miss the forest for the trees. We, we dare not miss the bigger picture of the whole thing. What all these specific fulfillments of the law add up to is Jesus bringing the story of God's redeeming plan started in the Old Testament to a completion. How will a holy God ever dwell with the unholy people He loves? How will a thrice holy God find a way to let sinners into heaven without dropping His just charges against them, or by letting them into heaven, letting, letting them into heaven to defile the place with their sin? How is He going to work all of this out so that He can live with the people He loves? The answer is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero of the story, uh, and He is the one through whom the whole story hangs together and makes sense. Jesus is the one who completes and perfects and brings to fulfillment the plan of redemption. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. That's why He came. And that's a a blessed reality for us to celebrate at Christmas. But He doesn't just come bringing us this great comfort of fulfilling the law for us so that we could receive all the benefits of God's blessing. In this passage, when you get to verse 19, <clears throat> excuse me, he also gives us he also gives us an exhortation, right? There's not just a comfort here for us in chapter 5, verse 17. It's also an exhortation for us in verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of, the he- of heaven. So, what are the implications of our Lord fulfilling the Scriptures? What are the implications for how we live? Well, I think there's two applications that are obvious. Number one, you must embrace the relationship Jesus had to the Old Covenant. You must believe that He fulfills the law and the prophets. And if you believe that He does that, 
You must obey the Scriptures by confessing your rebellion against God, turning from living life your own way, and put your faith in the atoning work Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sins. In other words, you must, in the words of the New Testament, become obedient to the gospel. You must obey the Scriptures by coming in faith to the person to whom all of Scriptures point, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then number two, you must relate to the law and the prophets and the Psalms and the new covenant apostles the way that Jesus taught. Jesus sums up that choice you have to make in verse 19. Again, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The very person who blesses us by fulfilling all the promises of God to us also exhorts us to keep the commandments and teach others to do the same. Heaven and earth haven't passed away yet, which means that the full force and authority and relevance of the Scriptures uh, are still in force for you and I today. You can demolish them if you want by ignoring them. You can annul them by setting up other sources of authority they have to argue with and compete with, like your own fallible interpretations of your own experiences. Uh, You can demolish them by doing mental gymnastics to try and reinterpret them to fit the spirit of the age you live in and be harmonious with uh, what the godless culture, the atheistic culture, is teaching. Or you could keep them, and by your example and wisely chosen words, encourage others to do the same. At Grace Fellowship Church, we believe Jesus of Nazareth is the literal Son of God, the Messiah foretold by Moses and the prophets, and the person to whom all of Scriptures point. He is the completion and fulfillment of the plan of redemption. His person and work is the logic by which all of the Scriptures cohere and hang together and harmonize without contradiction. He's the one who answers all of the paradoxes that are introduced in the Old Covenant. And our aim as a church family is to keep His commandments and influence others to do the same. Do you intend to honor Christ this Christmas season? If so, keep the commandments and encourage others by your words and by your example to do the same. Let's pray.